Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha. Designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. Hey everybody, my name is Jim Jansen and welcome to the EquipCast. If you like what you hear today and you want to continue to hear from us, and you can subscribe to the podcast. Just search for EquipCast, all one word, on your favorite podcasting platform. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Google. So just search EquipCast and you can subscribe. You can also continue the conversation and even help influence it. You go to our blog at equip.archomaha.org. There you're going to find resources, show notes, other helpful handouts and blogs related to what we talk about today you can help steer the conversation. So leave a comment and help guide where we're headed. We are excited to announce today some winners. We've been holding a contest for GLS Next Premium. Um, So excited to share Carter Lohman and Stephanie Stepanek. You're our winners, randomly chosen amongst uh, our three favorite people. No, randomly chosen. We use the random number generator and everything. So you all now have access to all the talks. We're going to be in touch with you. That is a goldmine, a treasure chest of talks. And those of you who are interested in attending the Global Leadership Summit this year, August 6th and 7th, uh, the Global Leadership Summit will be hosted by the Archdiocese of Omaha and Christ the King Parish at Christ the King Parish and up in Cedar County at Holy Trinity in Hardington. If you're interested in registering for the Global Leadership Summit, if you want to be a part of this event live or if you want to have your own in-home watch party, go to gls.archomaha.org. So my name is Jim Jansen. I am the Director of Pastoral Services for the Archdiocese of Omaha on day number three of my job, and I'm joined by my co-host, the Director of Pastoral Services Emeritus for the Archdiocese of Omaha, Father Jeff Lorig. How are you doing, Father? I'm doing really well on my third day as a new pastor as well. Yeah, you got a new job too. Where, Father, where are you the pastor now? I'm the pastor of St. Thomas More and St. Joan of Arc right here in Midtown Omaha. In town, Omaha. Nice. Where is that? You're off Grover, right? Grover and... Yeah, I am literally looking at the uh, intersection of 48th and Grover. And then St. Joan of Arc is a little bit further west. It's probably not quite technically midtown, but you go to like 74th and Grover. It's just off Grover about a block. So it's like if you just, you get past that 72nd Street and you're going west, you got to look to the right and you'll see a church sign. It's kind of a block away. So it's in the Westgate neighborhood. Nestled in the Westgate neighborhood. Yeah, I call it the the neighborhood church. Yeah, it really is. I used to spend a lot of Sundays there when I was doing my master's degree. Their mass just happened to perfectly fit in a break that we had, and we would go there to St. Joan of Arc. So Yeah, perpetual adoration is also there too. I I know that a few people from the chancery pop in for adoration. I know Mary Beth Hannes says, Mm -hmm. oh, I love to go there and pray. So it's a good place to pray for sure. So... Today, we're talking about how do you thrive in a new job in ministry, because that's really top of mind for us. <laughs> brand new jobs, brand new ministries. And I thought it would just be a really fun way to start the podcast with some depressing statistics. I thought that would be just a nice way to get us started here. Well, yeah, so I'm starting new, but I don't know. This isn't my first time starting something new. I have failed many a times on my new onboarding. So that's why I think it's important that we talk about it, because yeah. I read a book And because I wanted to do this really well this time around, because I can confidently say that I don't transition well into new positions. Mm -hmm. And especially when I had your job, 
I, that was really hard. And so I think I could have done it better. And so I want to do this one really, really well. Well, you know, you're not alone in that. Up to 40% of executives who are hired at the senior level, they're gone within 18 months. I mean, they're either pushed out, they fail, or they quit. And things aren't as bad in church world, but boy, there's some, I'm going to just quote some things from a, a survey here, uh, LifeWay Research, just talking about some of the stresses pastors feel. 84% of pastors say they're on call 24 hours a day. And I think that's not a good thing. I don't think that's the, the, <laughs> I don't think that's the feeling uh, that you want or that Jesus desires for us, that we can never rest. Sons get to rest, but slaves don't. Uh, 80% of pastors expect conflict in their church. 54% find the role of pastor frequently overwhelming. The other percentage are lying. Uh, 48% feel the demands of ministry are more than they can handle. And 21% say that their church has unrealistic expectations for them. But here's the good news. There's a silver lining in all this. The research seems to suggest that thriving in a role depends a ton on getting off to a good start. So let's talk about that. Father, what, what are some of the first things you need to be aware of when you start into a new ministry position? Well, first of all, if you're a leader, more than likely, nobody's going to onboard you. We tried really hard in my previous position to onboard people and try to get better at it every time we would hire somebody new. And I think we have a long ways to go, but we were always trying to do that better and better. I know when I started it as a leader, like I was kind of an executive at the Chancery and my boss was the Archbishop. Well, the Archbishop doesn't know anything about onboarding, right? He doesn't like, you know, he's busy. In fact, I think he was on retreat when I started. So I didn't really have a leader who was onboarding me. So if you're a leader, if you're lucky, somebody's going to help guide you and orient you to everything that's going on, but it's likely that nobody will. And so you can't just sit there and wait. You basically have to create your own onboarding program for assimilation and alignment, just to figure out like, how does this thing, like, not just like, where's the copy room and how do you work the copy machine? But like, what's, how does my job fit into the big picture here? And yeah. who am I supposed to talk to and all that stuff? So Oh my gosh, that is so true. I'm just thinking about the times that we've been blessed to have interns and we give interns the deluxe tour. I mean, you know, we're like, we're going over everything with the interns and, and the new hires. And yeah, I mean, Father, you know, same thing in this role. Um, a lot of people are like, hey, congratulations, good luck. No, nobody, nobody, <laughs> yeah. said, it. nobody said it with, uh, with that tone. But it's like, yeah, congratulations and good luck. And I think people assume because you're a leader, you know what's going on. But hopefully at some level, but boy, not necessarily. There's a lot of new things. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's something healthy about the fact that I left on good terms, you started on good terms. And so we have this relationship where, I mean, yesterday I was doing your final performance review, but in the midst of it, you were asking me, what do I need to know? Like yeah. basically you're asking, what are the things I need to know as we go forward, as you go forward in your new job? So there's something really healthy and beautiful about that succession plan. And again, we've been working on that for the last couple of months anyway, too. Yeah. So ideally, that would be great. And so I'm kind of in a good ideal situation here where Father Frank is the pastor or was the pastor as of you know June 30th, but he stayed here. He's the senior associate. And oh my gosh, it's so helpful to have him around here. And because he's only been the pastor here for one year, he's not really married to it. I mean, certainly he has relationships and he's done a lot of great work, but it's easier for him to kind of let go of some stuff. So ideally, that would be great if you could do some sort of succession planning. But even with that, Father Frank did ask me this morning, what do you do for exercise? 
<laughs> and I, I don't know if he was just like hinting at like, hey, you need to take care of your stress. But I know from reading this book, I have to take care of myself. I have to take care of my emotional, spiritual, and physical health. And so even if he wasn't implying anything by asking that question, it made me like, oh yeah, I got to get out and walk. Where's, where's the 24-hour fitness around here? I think they're bankrupt right now, but uh, where's Planet Fitness? Where, where, do I, where do I need to go? I need to switch clubs or I just need to go for a walk. Well, uh, and it's harder, yeah. right? It, I mean, literally with the new schedule, just the disorientation of the new routine, you're like, I don't even know the neighborhood yet, where to go for a walk. I don't know where the 24-hour fitness is. There's an intentionality that is required. I mean, let's be honest, it's hard enough to maintain good self-care, making sure that you're getting rest and exercise. But then you throw the challenge of a new routine and a new location, and it's even harder. You have to be even more intentional. Yeah, yeah. Spiritual life, too. I think I have a pretty good, solid spiritual life. I have a routine that I have set in my life. And yet, this is my third day, and I've changed my routine three times already. Where am I supposed to pray? Like, we don't have a chapel in the house, which I'm Mm -hmm. used to having. So yesterday, I tried to go over to church. This morning, I just read and sent some emails, and then I did my prayers after Mass. It's disorienting, for sure. So I I need to uh, figure that out. Father, it seems like the first step in all this is just self-awareness, kind of knowing where we're at. How can you tell when you're stressed? What are your kind of early warning signs? You know, actually, I did ask some questions before I ever started to the parish council. And somebody did ask me, how are you going to manage all this? And I don't think it was just a question about how are you going to manage having two churches and even having still a job at the archdiocese. So it was a question also like, how are you going to manage this emotionally? And mm-hmm. how are you going to manage your stress and, and all the demands and expectations? So I just said, look, it's one of the things I sort of pride on myself is that I really try to be self-aware in my prayer, really listening to the movements of my heart. When I don't feel well, I tell people. That was a gift that I received when I went to treatment 14 years ago after being a priest for two years. I went to treatment. I know that I'm an alcoholic. So I know I have that tendency to want to go to things that'll somehow give me temporary relief. So I know when I feel sick. So that's just, I think, a good grace that I have. That said, stress can come up in a way where you walk by somebody and you don't want to talk to them. Like this morning, there's mm-hmm. people after the daily mass and I made the intentional move to go say hi and pop over and then engage in a conversation. I think if I were a little more stressed, I would just walk right past them. I don't have anything to do with you. Like I'm busy. You don't know the stress I'm going through and move on. I think if you're starting to lose fun, if it's not fun anymore, that's a good yeah. sign. When you come home and you want to go to bed immediately. Now, I did that a few times in my last job, but it was usually after I overate. So <laughs> I ate and like, I'm going to go to bed, but I also wake up pretty early. So I don't usually use that as a sign. So you have to, again, know yourself. Sometimes uh, it's small things that don't usually bother you, bother you like, oh, putting my collar on. I know this is the priest problem. So this is a little uh, yeah. lifting of the curtain. A look inside folks. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a, like this is where I was, I was kind of late for mass. And so I'm like trying to get my collar and I'm like, why is this not working this morning? It's really easy. So like that doesn't normally bother me. Sometimes I have actually, there's another type of collar where I've put it on upside down. So I'll go about the day and my collar's upside down. And I think, oh, it's going to be one, it's going to be one of those days, huh? But you know, if you go out and you get your shirt inside out and like, uh, Jim, your, your shirt's inside out today. Like, Oh, well, that's on purpose. That's on purpose. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. That's what the kids are doing. I think, you know, if I find myself ruminating over rehearsing negative issues, 
Mm. Those are good signs for me. And yeah, I can honestly say that's already happened. I'm ruminating, I'm rehearsing. Like, how do I figure this out? Like, I don't, there's a problem over here. Like, ah, it's only my third day. Like what? They're going to say this and then I'm going to say this. And then you're like imagining the- Yeah, or just like, gosh, you know, I have all these sort of values that I have about ministry and evangelization and family formation, but it just doesn't happen by having an idea. But then, so who do I need to talk to? Or, or like, mm-hmm. should we change this this year? Should I do that tomorrow? Like, ah, <laughs> so uh, the, the best health for me in that, the best remedy for that is I need to talk to someone. So I get it out, get it out of my system. Yeah. Talk well, to Jesus about it. And I talk to other people. Father, would you talk about that? I think, you know, our audience is familiar with like, okay, pray, take a rest, get some exercise. But I think you've really recognized the extreme value in finding good sounding boards and people that can give you counsel and that can even help begin to implement a vision and provide the support for the parish to share in a little bit of your task of pastoring. How did you find those people? Because I know the Lord has given you some of those even just at the very beginning of your, your pastorate there. Yeah, I mean, so it's the first thing I look for, like who... Mm. can I trust? Who can I say, oh, there's this thing going on that I'm really uncomfortable with. Well, how should I approach it? So I look for people who, who I can trust, who can also help me execute some of my ideas. So I immediately look for a leadership team who could help me leading this forward, even if it's just one person. That's something I learned when I was at the chancery. I felt very alone in my first few days, uh, first few months. And then when you remember when Father Mallon came to the Archdiocese of Omaha and spoke, I gave him the ride out to Norfolk and I was expressing like, "Ah, I don't know what to do. And I think it was even when I was dropping him off Mm -hmm. at the airport on the way home after he'd heard me for whatever, four hours of complaining. (laughs) And he, first of all, he prayed over me, which is beautiful. Then he said something like, you need to get people in your life who support you. Who's on your leadership team. And I remember, I think maybe even that morning, I called yeah. you and Jen, and we had breakfast at some greasy spoon over Leo's. in Benson. <laughs> yeah, Leo's and Benson. But it was like, I just needed someone to talk to about how I'm stressed out. I'm nervous. I'm alone. And basically unburdening myself and putting the burden on you guys, <laughs> but also just asking me for help. I mean, so yes, I have been uh, really gifted with that here in this assignment. One is just Father Frank, the bomber, is an experienced pastor who it was his idea to bring me in here. So I told him like, if this thing fails, it's your fault. Okay. So, <laughs> so he's going to be. And that's how you helpful. orientate your, your leadership team. Yeah. <laughs> if this fails, it's your fault. Yeah. And the other one, I had heard some things about Teresa Gunya just from the mentorship program that the Office of Evangelization puts on. So I've met her there and just hear really good things. Impressed with the little that I've heard from her. And then when I met with her, it took me like 10 minutes to just like, okay, I'm going to ask her to be on my leadership team. But Great. even before that, I kind of knew I was going to ask. And so who did I ask before I asked Teresa? I asked Jesus. So that's a total Jesse Carey move. Jesse from the Appstock Oblates. That's her strategy for everything. Did you ask Jesus for it? So I had Jesus. I could really use some help as we move forward. This is a big task and it's your task. So you have to put the right people to help me execute this vision, this dream that you've given me. So, and thankfully she said yes. Yeah. And if I can make an observation, knowing your style, even before you had a chance to begin to come in and share a vision and share the direction that you wanted to go, I'm suspecting that you saw, if your MO has stayed the same, two things that you saw a little bit of a holy discontent. Father Frank wanted something more Mm -hmm. for the parishes 
and saw that you could help bring that. I know Teresa had a, a bit of a holy discontent, a desire to bring something more. And both of them have a passion for seeing lives changed, for seeing people encounter Jesus. They're definitely not satisfied with the status quo and they're teachable. There's this docility like, can we all work on this together? Can we learn together? <clears throat> and can, can, we, can we borrow your vision? Like uh, Teresa would be the number one first thing she'd say, like, I don't know if I have a vision for it. Like, I know, what I, I know what I don't like, but I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's just like, well, I kind of know what to do, but I don't know if I can execute it. So that's just kind of a perfect fit for all that. That's beautiful. So Father, as we talk, you want to spend a lot of time listening as a new leader and learning about the people and cultures and the systems and everything. But there is some role to begin to talk. At a certain point, no matter how good you are at just asking questions as a leader, at a certain point, the conversation gets quiet and people say, so Father, what do you think? What do you want to do around here? How do you know how much talking you should do? Well, I am guilty of saying too much. I'll say that. And that's what I did share with the, the councils. Because one of the questions I asked them is, what do you expect of me? So I'm listening. So you should hit the ground listening and open it up for them to ask the questions too. You know, you can hit the ground running, but that running has to be listening. Hit the ground listening. But people really do want to hear from you. So I opened up, I gave permission to the parish councils and finance councils of both parishes. I gave them like four questions, which you'll hear a little bit later, but I gave them the opportunity to tell me what's going on. And so the first question I asked them is, tell me what you expect of me. And so that was a big moment for us because it gave them permission to say what they needed to say, at least in those early stages. And actually, an older man on the parish council just said, you know, we really expect you to be transparent. And I'm like, no problem, because I say too much already. <laughs> like, ask me anything, I'll probably say too much. I mean, the only thing I'm never going to reveal is what I've ever heard in confession or who, who's ever been to confession to me. That's been a real grace in priesthood. But after that, like, yeah, I'll probably say too much. <laughs> Especially about my vision and, and what I'm really hoping for the church. It's really dangerous because sometimes if you have a vision, it gets rejected. Visions and dreams are like babies. Before they can really grow, they need to be nurtured. And when they're kind of tiny and and they're just in your head, they can be squished really easily by people who are negative. So you have to be really careful about who you share your dreams with. That's for sure. So I'm a little guilty of that. So I'm like always trying to test the waters. But, you know, you really have to figure out who needs to know first. So you have to really look at the key leaders and the stakeholders. Mm -hmm. Um, So some of the smaller groups, like a parish council, finance council, staff, I have the luxury of having a leadership team already on day three, which is a great grace. But uh, you want to share your information with specific groups before the whole church hears. Mm-hmm. And they kind of want to know. Like I remember yeah. when I came into the office the first time, we have this lady, Sister Pauline. She does a lot of our homebound stuff and bereavement ministry. And this ain't her first rodeo, right? This ain't her first yeah. pastor. So she's seen a new pastor come in. And I'm sure she's wondering, well, I still have my same job. And so the first thing I said to her, I'm Father Lorigan, you're not fired. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, she said, oh my gosh, I was totally thinking that too. Uh, you know, I was, that's what she wanted to know that. So she wanted to ask it too. But people want to know that you're the new guy. They want to know where you're coming from, but give them permission to ask the question. Yeah. And so that's what I've been doing with folks. And it's really important to start with those small groups, some of those key mm-hmm. people first, because those are the people who are going to help you execute. You have to develop trust with them first. And, yeah. and then when you do reveal some things to them, they become insiders. And so if you have this vision, 
and you tell the whole church about it, but you didn't tell your leadership team. You didn't tell the other pastor, the senior associate. Mm-hmm. You didn't tell that to your, your business manager and that they're learning this from a bulletin article or from a homily. I think they're going to be kind of offended. And so it's important to really communicate to those people. So we've had staff meetings. I'm doing one-on-ones with everybody and I'm going to ask a lot of questions about what their strengths are for sure. But I know in the conversation, they're going to ask me, what are you dreaming? What do you hope? Because that's one of the questions. Like, is there something you want to know from me? And what's concerning you about me? And what do you want to ask? Well, as you talk about this, you can see concentric circles, that the vision and the dreams and a more intimate level of counsel is being taken with your leadership team and then pastoral counsel and staff. And eventually we want everybody in the parish and we want everybody in the neighborhood to know that the dream and vision of this community but not everybody hears at the same time. And some people have more ownership to the degree that they have responsibility to help bring it about. Other people have a little bit more ownership in nurturing that that baby vision. Yeah, I think in order for people to feel, not just feel like they're insiders, but that they are insiders and they're gonna help you. One of the things I read in this book, and Whitney will link to the book, but one of the things this guy did was, and it's a little bit different in evangelical church, but he reports to the board where our boards are advisory. So they're not really expecting me to report to them. They can't hire or fire me. They're not Um, really your boss. Right. So, but I think it would be, it would do them well and do me well for them to know what did I do this week? What did I work on? So there's lots of stuff we're working on this week. I think they don't want to wait until August 4th when we meet again. Mm -hmm. They need to know that even though I mentioned like, I'd really like to get some streaming going here. They need to know the progress I've made. Who did I meet with? What are the plans? And then, you know, without shouting that out to the large church here, then I can get some buy-in early on. And I'm sure they're going to ask me how much it costs and and stuff like that. But I'd rather have them challenge me than the whole church challenge me. Or like, I would rather get feedback from them rather than get feedback from everybody or gossip in the back of the pews. Let's get this worked out first with them. Yeah. So Father, we're going to link in the show notes a whole great list of questions that can be asked to really help a person begin to know the culture. Because, I mean, this isn't just for pastors. There are a ton of DREs and youth ministers whose business cards didn't change at all, but their job description, because of this new world of ministry, I think about our teachers and our principals, it feels like their job description changed overnight. And so they may find themselves in a position if they're starting into a new style of ministry, if they're beginning something new where they're having to learn the culture and kind of reassess the terrain that they're entering. We're going to link all these great questions in the show notes for people, but just maybe pull out like one or two of your favorites. And I know you've had a chance to deploy these already um, to ask some of these questions. Do you have any stories of like, I I use this question and just a, a conversation that flowed from it? Yeah. Before you push your agenda, (laughs) we all have an agenda. And hopefully the agenda is to help people encounter Jesus, to equip disciples, and for your parish to live mercy. Hopefully that's our agenda. Now, of course, we have strategies to make that happen. But before we push it on people, you have to know that culture, who are the leaders that you can help bring on board. And then also you have to have some of a plan, you know, before you start Mm -hmm. imposing things. But to get to know the culture, you're right. You have to ask questions. And so I have been able to ask some questions. Now, obviously I'm the director of, or I, I don't know if I'm the director. Am I the coordinator manager? I don't know. I am anymore what my title is, but I'd still do pastoral planning for the archdiocese. 
So mm-hmm. I know all the statistics of every parish and I've been studying it and looking at trends and patterns. So I know these parishes really, really well. So that's part of this like defining reality. What are our statistics, attendance statistics and baptism, confirmation, school, Sunday giving? That tells me a piece of the story. So that would be one place you could start. It's like, hey, what are our, our attendance statistics the last few years? Have we been growing? Are we declining? So that's something you don't even have to have a conversation about. You can ask the director of pastoral planning. You can just email me and I can probably find that stuff or I'll just send you the reports for all the parishes. So that would be one place to start. I think the phrase is called defining reality because you might have it in your head of what the parish looks like. And even after you look at the statistics, that's not reality. That's just a piece of the story. So next is talk to some people. And so what I've been able to do is talk to the staff and other key leaders and uh, some of the, the boards and councils. And, and one of the questions I ask them is, you know, what's been the greatest challenge facing the church in recent years? Do that without the former leader being there. So, I, you know, I, I didn't invite Father Frank to that. First of all, I don't want him to be hurt. And I want to give them permission to speak freely. And not that they're mean people, they're going to throw people under the bus. I really haven't seen that at all, quite honestly. It's been really beautiful how respectful they are of their former leaders. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes, yeah, greatest challenges would be people say over and over again, attendance or engagement. We just can't find volunteers. Mm. Nobody wants to do anything. There's no young people anymore. At St. Joan of Arc, it's the school. Those numbers have been way down. Hopefully they'll stay steady this next year. But yeah, so you start learning things like that. I mean, I can kind of guess them by looking at the statistics. But when it's affirmed by them, it tells me that they kind of know. They know it too. And, yeah. and also, I'm not spouting things off like, you know, your church isn't growing. If they say it, then they don't have to hear it from me. Like, I'm, I'm not the bearer of bad news. They're the ones who are saying like, ah, we could really use some help on that. So yeah. that, that's one of them. Some of the first questions I asked is about financially. Yeah, I want to know, like, yeah. well, how long can we keep our schools going? I want to know, are we running into debt? Even if nothing changed and we have enough savings to keep St. Joan of Arc alive, keep that school going, which we do, by the way. So that was one of the first questions I asked. Can I see the reports. And I asked the question, if nothing changes, how long would we have before we'd have to close the school? Mm. And I got seven to 10 years. And so I'm like, Hey, I can work with that. First thing I know is like, well, everybody around me, I keep hearing greatest challenges. Will we have enough money to keep the school alive? Now I know the answer. Like, yes, we're not closing. We're alive. We're in business and we're here to stay and we're here to grow. And I want people to know that. And I told my teachers, I said, that's the message. I told my board, that's the message. We got to quit the narrative. So I did that before I started working. I'm like, the narrative is not we're closing in a few years. The narrative is we've got room to grow and we're going to grow. There's an interlogic behind these questions. What are the things you're trying to understand and figure out with these questions? What am I trying to figure out? Just trying to really figure out like how decisions are made around here. <laughs> what's the unwritten code or what's the unwritten culture? I'm really trying to figure out the culture. And Mm. what are people celebrating? What are people tolerating? You know, that's kind of the old definition, not old, but it's one of the ones we use a lot in the pastoral services. You create culture by what you celebrate and by what you tolerate. So Mm. I'm listening for that. What's the culture around here? The Mm. unwritten code is just sort of like, you might have things that are written in bylaws or written, like certainly in Catholic church, we have a written code of canon law. We have Mm. liturgical law. We have ways of doing things, but there's sort of an unwritten way people kind of been doing things. I'm listening. I'm just trying to figure all that out. Like you might say that this is how we do it, but this is how it's really done. You know, technically Mm -hmm. the pastor makes decisions in a Catholic church. That's how decisions are made. 
but it's not always the case in, in a lot of our smaller churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in our bigger churches, there's a delegation of authority, but it's clear, it's written, and it's practiced usually. But sometimes in a small church where you've kind of given ownership, which is beautiful to your parish, to your parishioners, but you've given so much ownership that people are making decisions they shouldn't be making because they're starting to do liturgical abuses. They're starting to do things that are not really kosher. I'm mixing my religions here, but you understand what I'm saying. Like, "Eh, I'm not sure that's real Catholic. I'm that's not really how we do things. It's beautiful that you've taken ownership, but let's step back from that. I don't want to take it away from you, but I at least want to inform you and lead you. And I want to help you to do the things that are Catholic. So I I don't want to take authority away from people. You don't want to do it right. (laughs) You know, you mentioned that's a challenging situation. You find someone and let's presume innocence that there's no ill will, but somebody's doing something that you're just not comfortable with as a pastor. It's either slightly out of bounds or kind of on the edge. How would you approach that? What would a conversation like that sound like? Because I've heard you say, several times. You want to listen, you want to preserve people's ownership and engagement, and clearly just firing and yanking responsibilities away from people isn't the preferred route. How do you handle a situation like that when there's something that feels like a non-negotiable that you have to address? Well, I think just like in marriage, you know, like you start with the I feel (laughs) instead of like, you're a horrible person, or like you're a liturgical abuser. You start with you know, this is really making me a long uncomfortable. Now, of course, in my Gallup strengths, belief is pretty high. It's number six for me. So mm-hmm. things bug me if things aren't done right. I have certain values, and one of them is doing things correctly liturgically. Now, I might be a little progressive in music, and you know, so I'm not like a traditional, but like I'm going to follow the germ and I'm going to follow the, the Roman Missal, do what's supposed to be done, and say what's in there. So when things are not done correctly, it bugs me. I don't feel good about it. And so I try to find the people who are in charge of it. Not everybody, but at least one of them. And I'd say, you know, I'm a little uncomfortable with this and it's not right. It's inappropriate. Now I'm not saying you're fired or we need to change the whole thing today, but we need to figure out a way to lead others in doing this correctly. And so I think being heavy handed now, again, if we're taking the Eucharist home and having tabernacles in our own home, or, you know, we're desecrating the Eucharist, just, you know, something blasphemous or something like that. Obviously I'm going to be heavy handed. There might be cussing involved. <laughs> Jesus would. <laughs> that. Uh, but there are others, you know, like, yeah, it's just a little off. So I'm going to start with, I'm uncomfortable with this. It's, yeah, I just don't, I, I think we can do this better and more Catholic. And so there's things like that where like, it feels like it's, well, yeah, we should be able to do that. Like we, you know, during the COVID time, you're not really supposed to bring Holy Communion to the sick mm-hmm. unless they're dying. That's an instruction we received from the bishop. And that's also part of the written code of obedience. And we know the Eucharist is a beautiful gift that we would want to give to the sick. But just because you're an EMHC doesn't mean you should just willy-nilly keep going up to the tabernacle and taking the host. That's not something we'd want to do. And I'm not saying that's happening anywhere, but I'm just saying that's a good example. I see it happen in a lot of places. Or like, you know, a pastor a while ago just said, oh, yeah, if you're an EMHC and there's somebody sick, you know where the tabernacle key is, you go ahead and take care of it. Like I would just say, I do have my no button here. I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> right. That's just unacceptable. I, that really makes me uncomfortable. But people would say like, but it's really Catholic. Like it's, it's like the Eucharist. We want to give that to the sick. Well, the bishop said during COVID times, only in danger of death and really the only person really should be going to the tabernacle is somebody who's clergy. So 
again, I could go in there heavy handed, put it in the bulletin or write a scathing email. Not good tactics. Yeah. I need to find the people who are leaders and say, is there a better way we could do this? Cause I'm uncomfortable with this. So I start with one and I say, let's get the other leaders together and let's learn. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think I am, but I could be cause I'm not an expert, but I know there's a book <laughs> that I can go look at. And I yeah. also know I have a chancery that's going to be offering unprecedented support. So when I say I need help, they'll help me, uh, help me to figure out tactically how to do it, but like, give me the law so that I have something to stand on. As I listen, there's a couple of things. You're clearly signaling, we need to have a discussion. I'm the leader and I'm not comfortable with this. And you're trying to gather people for that discussion. And you're starting the process of change, but by inquiry and by conversation and by clarity about like, okay, is there a principle or a law, even in this case, right, that is going to guide our decision making about this? So you're starting a conversation and you're including people in, in the change. Um, yeah, I want to be a father. I want to do this pastorally and I want to guide sheep, not beat sheep over the head with my stick. Yeah, that, right? that would the, be the, bad. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's a horrible dad joke. I know, I'm sorry. I am a dad. Hey, uh, so I've been dying to ask this question because this is the unwritten rule. When you're a pastor, don't make any changes for the first year. And I think we can recognize that there is maybe some wisdom in that or we can understand where that's coming from. How do you think about making big changes? Are you going to follow that? Should the people of Thomas More and Joan of Arc expect that there really won't be any changes for the next year? No, they should not expect that. But I think once you start to ask these questions, you kind of figure out what people want. And they're expecting change. Father Bomber, right? He asked me to come here because he wants change. Teresa, mm -hmm. same thing. So I already have that support team. That'd be first thing. So people are sort of expecting some change, but big stuff. Big stuff is when you maybe spend $50,000 or more, or if you hire somebody new or something, you know, I think that, I mean, that might be something you'd want to run across your board. But I do think before you do the big stuff, it's okay to have some early successes and that does require some changes. So, you know, we're going to do uh, streaming here. Now, both parishes haven't been able to do the streaming. Mm. And so I know somebody in one of the parishes that's actually has a passion for this. And so I just, I actually, I kind of shared the idea and then he started executing right away. And next thing I know, we're going around the church looking at what's my shot list for, for, for streaming, like a shot list. I don't know. I thought we were just going to put an iPad up and, you know, plug it in. No, so we're going to do it really well. Now I asked both councils, I said, you know, I really would love to have some streaming going on. And I gave the reason, the rationale, which is it's going to take a long time for people to get back into our buildings. We have to figure out to get into their buildings. And so the best way to do that, at least what I'm learning, is through the internet. Wow. Can you say that again? That's just a very cool turn of phrase. Yeah. So it, it's going to take a long time for people to get back into our buildings. So we have to figure out a way to get into their buildings, into their homes. Wow. And, yeah. So when I say that, and I don't think it's just because a nice uh, turn of a phrase, People nod their heads like, yes. And every pastor knows that our numbers are down and it's going to take forever to get those numbers back. The other is, as a pastor, my parishioners need to know my voice. They need to hear my voice. How can I shepherd people if they never hear my voice? Mm -hmm. And so that's another sort of rationale. So I shared that with them. I got some really quick head nods. And that's not even, you know, the other one is like, we need to reach new people and, and really quick win to reach new people is you need to have a great front porch through your, your website. Like people need to be able to check you out 
And if you've got good stuff, more than likely they'll want to come at some point if you ask them to do that. Anyway, so I'm just talking about easy successes early on. It's okay to have those. Look for the low-hanging fruit and then celebrate those. And because if you get those early wins and people are head nodding and you are able to execute on it, they're going to see like, oh my gosh, this guy's serious. He's in it. But I think another thing too is once you define reality, and I think defining reality is it's learning like, is this church really healthy or is it kind of flat or is it like Mm -hmm. on life support? Once you kind of figure those out, then you can make some strategies about how to move forward. And if it's in the exceptional stage, it means it's growing, it's in good financial health. uh, There's a sense of excitement. Do you want to change a lot? Heck no. (laughs) You want to build on successes. If it's kind of flat, like little numerical growth, kind of muddy or non-existent vision for the future, there's some dissension. Well, build on some successes, but convince the people that the change is necessary, create a sense of urgency, all that. So there's a certain strategy for that, for some change. If it's on life support, like decline in growth and finances, hopelessness, discouragement and fear, stuff like that, then you need to invigorate morale, give hope, provide vision, make difficult choices. So changes Mm -hmm. and then act quickly, boldly and then decisively because the church is too important. Right. You've heard me say it, and I just, I'm quoting Bill Hybels, like the local church is the hope of the world, right? This is where people are going to encounter Jesus through the neighborhood parish. Like this is our obligation. It's our responsibility, and it's, our, and it's the great privilege of the local church right here, the opportunity for people to enter into heaven, right? Enter into the church, into encounter with the Jesus who gives life and hope and joy, right? All the things that we sort of enjoy as Catholics, that's why it's so urgent. Like if your church is not living up to that, be bold and do what you need to do. So my quick take on both parishes is we're kind of in the middle somewhere, you know, a little bit declining, but there's lots of hope. And so it's hard to say like, oh, there's no hope. So I don't want to be too quick with big changes. So the first thing I'm probably going to do in the next three months is I'm going to gather all the leaders together separately, the two parishes, and I'm going to ask them to share like, what do they love most about being part of their parish? Mm -hmm. I want to know what attracted them to this parish, what made you make a decision? Maybe think back over your parish memories. What have been the real high points? And really what I'm doing is I'm asking, let's celebrate what's so great about our parishes because I don't want to come in and step on those. Like both parishes have great adoration histories and legacies, especially St. Joan of Arc. And people will say that first thing, like we love adoration. So let's build upon that. Let's make it better. Let's do it right. Let's be three deep at each hour, that kind of thing. So let's not risk having to end it. So I want to make it better. So let's celebrate those great things that are happening. And of course, as a pastor, I don't want to be the guy who ends that. So, you know, I want to make sure we build on the good things. But then I want to ask them, this is a fun exercise. And this will be a good action item for people at home too. So let's assume that tonight, after this podcast here, you go into a sound sleep. And when you awaken, it is three years into the future. It's three years out. And while you were asleep, Many exceptional things happened. Miracles happened. And your parish, your church became something you would most like to see for yourself and your friends, for your children, for your community, and for our world. Now you awaken, you go into St. Thomas More or St. Joan of Arc, you go into your parish, and you get a panoramic view. You're moved and proud in a heartfelt way. It is the kind of church or community you most want to be a part of, one that is living God's call fresh and vibrant and meaningful and powerful ways 
So now share some of those highlights that you envision. Mm. So basically dream a little bit. Like you wake up and it's the church you've always wanted to have. And now share that. Write it out. Write it in your journal. I just think if, if I ask people to do that and then they start to articulate their vision for the future, what is happening now, what's new, what's different, what's better, then we kind of have a mandate to, to move forward and change things. Right. So first things first is let's celebrate the things that are great about our parish. Mm-hmm. But then also let's dream about what could be better. And not, you know, Deacon McNeil often talks about it as a uh, the church basement talk. Mm-hmm. It's church basement complaining like, oh, we need, to, we need to get our young people in here. And we need like, no, I, I want it to really be a dream and a hope. And then right. once people articulate that and they say, we want our parish to grow, we want to see young people. Okay, then I feel like I have a mandate. I know what I shouldn't change, but what I should change is maybe we should have a mass that's attractive to young families. Maybe we should have a conversion engine. Maybe we should have an alpha. Maybe we need to really double down on alpha and not just a side program, but make it the program. This Mm -hmm. is how this church is going to help other people who encounter Jesus be filled with the Holy Spirit and have transformed lives. This is the thing that we're going to do. Not father or some leader who's got some passion, but we as one church, this is this thing we're going to do and you're all going to help make that happen. So I feel like once you start getting people to dream a little bit, and it sort of matches up with what I'm dreaming about, which I sort of hope so, then I think you sort of have a mandate. Like you have a clear slate. It's like, yeah, let's do this. Well, you're surfacing their desires. I love it. It's this like Catholic version of Rip Van Winkle where (laughs) they go through this exercise and as they begin to dream, their desires are expressed and that gives you the freedom to say, hey, remember how you want to see young people here? Remember how you want to see a community that's growing and you're able to lead them to their own expressed desires. Yeah, you can um, do this in a survey too. So actually St. Thomas More did a survey and people have referred to it. So that gave Father Hunky a couple pastors mm-hmm. ago a mandate to renovate the church interiorly. Yeah. It's just beautiful. It's bright, sunny, you know, it's just really, and they, they, they just put a St. Thomas More icon up in the back. It's beautiful that Father Riser just finished, completed. It's, it's really amazing. So that was really, it came from inquiring from the people. And so that's one way to do it. I, I would rather gather people together because people complain about this always is just, even if you're a small church, it doesn't feel like we're a community. Like we're a community, we're a family, but do we really know each other? So I want to get into small groups and to do this exercise. Think about the best memories, but also let's think about our best dreams and share those together as one body. And so it's like surveys can get the job done. But I think gathering as one church, as one body of Christ and sharing those dreams together with the Holy Spirit present, then I think you really get a mandate to move forward. Yeah. Wow. Thank you, Father. This has been fantastic. You're on what? Day three of a 180 day adventure. I think it's longer than 180 days, but the whole under 180 days is like, you should really kind of have a plan for the next six months, your first six months. If you pick up the book, you'll kind of see that that's what really motivated me when I read that book was, oh yeah, where are my first six months going to be like? Plot yeah. it out. So I kind of have like, an, what do I want to get done in July? What do I want to get done in August? Like this morning, I took something from this thing I learned by listening. It's like, do I want to battle that today? No, I'm going to put that in the August file. It's almost like, you know, mm-hmm. like in Getting Things Done, that book, they talk yeah. about a tickler calendar. So like something mm-hmm. how to tickle your memory. So I'm like, I know it's important but I don't want to have to deal with it right now. So I'm going to put it into August. And when August comes up, I'm going to see it in my, my Evernote file mm-hmm. and say, oh yeah, we got to talk about that. We got to like, 
and maybe I'll push it off to the next month, but I want to keep you reminded, like we need to solve that. So yeah, hopefully I'm here longer than 180 days. Um, <laughs> But you want to keep thinking about what do you want to get done in the next month. If you're always reactive, you're never going to be able to accomplish the vision that, that God's putting in your heart. Well, we should come back to this sometime around Christmas, 180 days, and hear the story of how it unfolded, what the Lord revealed in the desires of your parishioners and what you were able to move on right away. And that'd be fun to re- revisit this six Absolutely. months from now. Yeah, I hope, I hope we can keep this going. So this way we don't have to write the book. We can just go back to the podcast. Fantastic. Well, if you have enjoyed this conversation and if you want to chime in with advice for leaders who are starting into new roles, or if you are a leader starting into a new role and you have some questions or some tips and advice you'd like to share, go subscribe at the blog and put in a comment, equip.archomaha.org and have a great day.